Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, well, think about it. I mean, you have all of these economists with 160 IQs that spend their life studying it. Can you name me one super wealthy economist that's ever made money out of security? We say things like, oh... Maths, I can't do that. It's not for me, and everyone laughs. You might have a repossession, but it's not like that for the government, not least because of who they're borrowing it from. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we are looking at climate change this week and reaching net zero. Is it doable or is it just a pipe dream? If we all agree on the size and the importance of climate change, if we all agreed on getting to zero carbon and that that was necessary, could we actually do it? And if so, how quickly? Well, Steve is often a bit of a downer on this. It's all too slow and too late. So let's talk to someone who thinks, an engineer indeed, who thinks it can be done, yes, in time, if we just turn things up a notch or 10, perhaps. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So is the idea of zero emissions a realistic possibility? I mean, Steve has said that he doesn't think so without us making significant compromises to our living standards. He said that many times in previous episodes of the podcast. We can't decouple growth from energy consumption and all energy uh, creates waste is basically uh, his argument. I think that's basically the gist of it, isn't it, Steve? Well, let's look at someone who spent a lot of his own energy to see if there are ways to accelerate our attempts at reducing the risks from climate change. Harold Desing is a scientist at EMPA, uh, the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Materials, Science and Technology. He's with us today. Maybe, Harold, first of all, just to explain a bit about the work you're doing on climate change and the modelling that sits behind it, you know, without getting us uh, too lost in the in the complexity of it all. Just to give us a brief outline. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, so what I'm, what I'm trying to do is uh, I'm a mechanical engineer from my background and I'm trying to approach this um, this huge task of uh, changing our entire system from a from a more engineering perspective and I was trying to find out um, how we can accelerate the energy transition so we need to build a lot of uh, renewable energy infrastructure and we need energy for it we need materials for it and this need to come from somewhere so it can only come from the current system we have and basically how can we use the current system to make the transition to a renewable transition? How fast could that be if we would just be limited by our technical and physical abilities? Right? And how, how is this also constrained by the Earth system? So that's the basic idea, and our willpower as well, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you you make you make the point in one of your in, in one of your papers that you know um, we wouldn't accept the risk of uh, of getting on a plane. I think yes. was your analogy. <laughs> if you know, if there was a fifty percent chance that the pilot didn't know what he was doing, exactly. Uh, and yet we 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 seem quite happy to say, well, we'd like to you know try and accept a limit of one and a half degrees in 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 uh, in climate change, in climate heating, um, but we don't sort of like put 100% behind that we you know we do go about it in a bit of a half-hearted way exactly exactly that's a, that's a bit the the point no it's, it's really for me as an engineer right so it's uh, I, 
I was designing aircrafts and and, and other technical systems. Uh, I was learning how to do that. And um, what strikes me in this in this whole debate about planning our future is that um, when it comes to technical systems, we're very very precautious. Um, but when it comes to planning our own future, we kind of say, okay, a 50% chance of exceeding uh, 1.5 degree heating is acceptable. And we know from climate science that this would be actually very, very bad already. Yeah? So it's kind of those risks of triggering tipping cascades and uh, uh, we have extreme events and so on and so forth. And in the end, I was struck by this, right? So that we have this this kind of uh, two different perspectives on the one hand, uh, our technical systems need to be incredibly safe, and at the other hand, uh, our future can be very, very risky with our actions we do today. Yeah, induced by that. I mean, why do you think that is? Why do? Why are we prepared to take a risk on the on the climate? Is it just political? Well, it's it's too far away, maybe for the for the political decision makers and the economic decision makers of today. Like, if you think of most of the consequences will come in the next uh, 50 to 100 years. Yeah, So we, we are used to in our economy to think in, in quarterly financial periods or in uh, in the in the political system, we're thinking of a four years election period or something like this. Right? So it's not the timescales don't match up. Right. So what about so in your work, and I want to explore more about it, obviously, um, the uh, so the, the point I made in the introduction that Steve's idea that you can't really decouple uh, our, our our use of uh, or our carbon emissions from growth from economic growth that's pretty much what you, your view isn't it Steve? Well, it, it, it incredibly dependent upon energy. Energy has to be found whatever source you have, and it has to be the right form of energy. And uh, you know, most people when they think about uh, a, a carbon neutral future are thinking about the electricity needs we have, and their really minds are really stuck on the scale of a domestic house. Hold. And uh, there's, there's an enormous issues in actually providing the energy we need for the you know, incredibly complicated industrial system we have. Uh, that, of course, one of the reasons why we have this huge disconnect in the, the approach we take to machines versus the approach we take to our society is that our economists have got no bloody idea of how machines work in the first place. And, uh, and their notions about the economy involve these vague hand-waving terms of labour and capital uh, without looking at the actual engineering detail that's involved in any of that and the dependence upon energy. So my concern is the machine we have have right now, the, the global machine, uh, is massively dependent upon oil and coal for reasons that go it's fundamentally about energy, but also go well beyond it into the, the need for, you know, um, you know, to make steel, you've got to have coke, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to make concrete, you've got to have, uh, uh, you know, coal again is involved in the manufacturing there. So it's much, much more difficult to extricate that from our, uh, ourselves from that dependence than a vague, even, even my work bringing energy into the model of production doesn't do that issue justice and on and the infrastructure we have is for centralized distribution of energy not for uh, remote uh, collection of energy and then trying to aggregate that which is what what happens when you go from a fossil fuel based system to uh, you know so-called renewables and of course the, the it's the energy source is renewable the sun and the wind and, and tides but the materials that are needed to make the machines that collect the energy and to transmit it and yeah. transmit it those yeah. so those are all issues that I, um, you know, that I'm aware there's a, a conflict of, of interpretation to that. First of all, the mainstream economists completely 
ignore all this stuff. But then we've got engineers, uh, some engineers, and that's where Simon Maichow uh, in particular saying we don't have the minerals to provide the facilities uh, for the collection mm. of that renewable energy by wind and, and solar means. And other engineers will say, well, we don't have a distribution system for the energy either uh, to take you know, re- remotely distributed collection of energy and make it into, into, tra- into transmission of energy through the existing grid. So um, you know, what I'd like you to talk about, Harold, to some extent is how your views and interpretation differ from uh, the work of people like Simon Maichow. Uh, about just whether we actually have the um, the physical inputs necessary to mine this energy, um, because, because you always mine energy, you don't make it. To mine this energy uh, at a distributed a distributed system. Um, we, because we don't really we, we don't really have a choice, do we? Because I mean, I mean, to your point, how the the risk is too great. Yeah. We have to move to uh, really to to zero emissions almost you know as quick as we possibly can, which I think is the the focus of your work, yeah, yeah. but is is that achievable? Is the you know this, the short yeah. question that <laughs> sort of gets these my long winded intro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, achievable. It's 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 a uh, it's a difficult term, right? But maybe mm. let me just react a bit to, to this. Um, I agree with you, Steve, that we have really this this huge dependence on fossil fuels today, and this is basically in every in all of our social activities we have fossil fuels in today. So today you can actually do nothing without fossil emissions. But this is uh, like from a technical perspective, uh, almost all these emissions you can get rid of. Uh, and that's like in the, in the climate debate, we have introduced this idea of hard to avoid emissions. Yeah? And this is obviously related to a lot of the industrial processes, uh, but also, for example, aviation and shipping and such things. But from a, from a technical perspective, hard to avoid means like oh, it just is a, it's, it's a matter of how much effort do we want to put into it? We could avoid basically everything. Um, there's there's maybe there's some process-related emissions, for example, from cement production, yeah, which is which is actually in the process of making uh, the cement. It's not just the fuel which goes into it. Um, but in the end, it, it's it's a matter of how much co- does it cost us in terms of energy to to replace it. And um, it's just so much more convenient today to use fossil fuels for it, yeah, because they're cheap, they're readily available, and you can basically all the ecosystem evolved around fossil fuels in the first place. It's all geared towards it, but it's not impossible to change that. And so it's uh, always it's always going to be yeah. cost or capacity, isn't it? You know, the you know either are there enough resources available to change our current process or and and yeah, is yeah. It, is and it's, it gonna... it's of course also related to demand then so basically mm. how much of these materials or processes do we actually need in the end right? this is another level we can take uh, so it's, if, if it's too expensive to do whatever uh, steel production with hydrogen maybe we need to replace uh, some of the steel we use today in society yeah? With some other materials, which which we could produce then, or we need to reduce our consumption of these materials. So, so then, the, the economic question behind all of that is: How do we cope with all that extra cost? And and also, I think it's what Harold was getting into the last moment there: the income distribution issue. Mm. Be- because there's it's always the poor who pay. Well, yeah, yeah and the, the thing. So, that so a great example of that is it's it's uh, in in London at the moment. There's a a big debate because the uh, they want to introduce a, a low emission zone. Mm. Uh, where if you've got a car, an old car that's a heavy pollution anywhere within the M25, you're going to pay £12.50 a day. Well, the people who've got those uh, old high-emitting cars 
are obviously people who can't afford to get a new car and they can't afford to pay twelve fifty a day. Twelve fifty a day. Per day. Yeah, yeah. Unless they don't pay and then they've got a fine of several hundred pounds. Uh, so yeah, so there's you know the the poor are the ones who pay. So that, but that is always the case. It's like the uh, you know the the protests we've seen in in Paris. Same deal, isn't it? It's mm, the yeah. whenever you're trying to tackle climate change, it's always the poor who end up paying. So that is an economic problem. Yeah, five. Well, that's five thousand pounds a year, what, yeah, uh, roughly yeah. for, for for what what range outside the. Um Inside the M5? Inside the M25. M25, yes. which yes. is the, the Basically giant... the whole of London. Okay, yeah. we're 11 million people, Yeah, pretty much, 12 yeah. million people. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's £5,000, which... What, what's the average salary? Is it, would it be 40000 in the, that, that... the that A bit less than... Well, I don't know what it is in London, but, but yeah. If you have to, it's higher than the average for the UK. Anyway, we're labouring the point. The point is about income distribution. It's it is always impossible. The, yeah, exactly. It's simply it's impossible. The, yeah. So, uh, but I mean, that's... With all of this, the cost that we're talking about... Yeah. Uh, to try and uh, to try and transform, uh, you know, the solution for energy uh, to zero emissions yeah. is always going to be costly, and it's always going to be unaffordable for lower income earners. Well, if if it's if at the same time public transportation gets cheap or for free, then uh, this would be also a way to make mm. it work, right? Because, uh, like in a, in a city, who needs really a car? Now, for the few occasions where you need it, you could maybe still have it, but. Uh, most of the time, it could go around. Harold, oh, you, you, don't don't you bring your socialist <laughs> European ways over to uh, to Britain? God, you know we we work fine as it is, as you can see. So I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, that is a point, though, isn't it? It's all policy decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's about the willingness of change, right? Um, I think this, this is this is an important uh, aspect. So, how do we design the system around it so that it actually uh, is is more equitable than in, in than it is today, yeah. I don't think it's the, it's always the poor who have to pay for it. If we if we could really think of a more equal distribution, also in in, in the energy, and I think decentralized uh, production capacities, so solar panels, for example, yeah, they could be really a way of enabling uh, everyone to to have their own energy or have any uh, equitable amount of energy and also control over it. So if you, if you this, this this is the um, we're getting the, the point of conflict between. Uh, one group of engineers who are very much in favour of nuclear and want uh, focused energy, and that's easily plugged into the existing yeah. <laughs> grid, uh, and versus distributed, which you're talking about, yes. which of course, you know, it's like trying to pump water from from your house back to the dam, uh, rather than the water coming from the dam down to your house. That's the analogy I've got from my electrical engineering uh, friends who are very pro-nuclear, and they can't see a distributed system working. So, have you done what? What's your modelling on this on this issue? How do you how do you attempt to cope with that particular problem? Well, so I haven't I haven't really myself done any detailed modeling of the of the energy system as it plays out on, on such a level. But what I've done is is on a global level. We have uh, looked into like if we now go from a from a fossil centralized system to a, a renewable, basically solar based system, and uh, we we add energy storage to it so batteries or uh, hydro pump storage or um, uh, synthetic fuels or so yeah? so whatever small amounts of storage you add to it you you make the the emissions for the transition much much worse so basically you need so much more energy and materials to uh, provide the storage that you won't get anywhere for the climate so basically, the conclusion is that we need to avoid storage as much as we can, and this is this is what I call uh, the sunflower society. So it's basically aligning the the 
demand with the supply, the renewable supply. And in the end, this is also playing out, or is, is it could work for a decentralized power system because uh, things are much more local and much more shifted to when the energy is actually there. So when the sun shines and uh, it would actually uh, put less pressure on the grid. So it's more like you could think of, you have more or less uh, isolated insular systems, smaller systems, which are maybe connecting and exchanging a little bit of energy, but not too much. So it's more just really regionalized and, and local in, in space and in time. It's almost a hybrid then between that uh, sort of push down model and and a, and a more localized model is what you're trying to make. So, so for, for example, if I've got solar cells sitting on the, the roof of my house and I've got batteries, yes, are you saying that that would be unsustainable? Well, clearly it would be unsustainable because the sun hasn't shone in Britain since nineteen. So it's certainly this year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just yeah, we can collect a lot of rainwater, but sunshine, yeah, forget it. So, um, I mean, is that so that that doesn't seem viable? Yes. But then there's, and that's your point that storage becomes just too expensive. I mean, without, without, completely without storage, you won't be able to do it, right? But the, the point is this: that if we need to try to minimize the amount of storage we need, and obviously in in, in local places like in Britain, it will be different than when you think of South Africa or of, of Australia or wherever. Yeah, there's an interesting study also where uh, they map where most of the people live. Yeah. In, in a global perspective. And actually 90% of the people globally live in the sun belt. So where the seasonal variations is very low and actually there's a lot of sunshine. So you could have a very local um, solar powered society with almost no storage. Now, of course, needing to shift the demand of these people into the, when the sun shines, yeah? so during the day. But of course, in, when you think of countries like Norway or Finland, you would have a different approach there, and you need to probably rely more on, on hydropower or on, on bioenergy or so than on solar. Right. So you, so irrespective of where you are in the world, you believe you know this this move to net zero. I mean, it is doable if we can get over the obstacles. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, let's look at when we come back. Let's look at. Uh, let's just knock on the head the, the, this very these various forms of storage and how workable they are. We'll be back in just a second on the debunking economics podcast. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we are looking today on whether it is possible to fast track to net zero. 
Harold Desing is uh, joining us from the Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Sciences and Technology. So, Harold, I mean, we do hear the argument that, you know, there's not enough uh, of the rare earth minerals that are required for us to store the energy that's required. Now, obviously, you're saying, well, we need to minimise uh, how much storage uh, we, we use. But let's just look at a few different ones. Obviously, batteries are one, and that is where you do need these minerals. The other is uh, pumped hydro storage. Uh, another is uh, synthetic methane. So d- just take us through how, how each of those work so we all fully understand it. So basically batteries, everyone knows in the like what you have in your cell phone, but then pumped hydro storage, it's basically two dams, so one up, up in the mountain and one down in the valley, and you pump water up and down. So when you pump it up, you, you store the energy. When you get it down, then you get it released back. And uh, so you can obviously only do it when when you have uh, a difference in height somewhere. So you need mountains. It makes uh, life more difficult in the Netherlands in that case, yes, for example. Yes, exactly, exactly. But you could also, there's there's some ideas where you have, where you cut out a, a huge uh, piston, rock, uh, like a rock piston, and you move up this rock with uh, water, so like hydro hydrostatic pressure. But that sounds, uh, that sounds, um, that sounds that expensive. With, that, I mean, we, we were talking about cost before. That sounds, that sounds expensive. Well, batteries are always expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not so much and, expense, it's yeah. the speed with which this can be done. Exactly. Because mm. uh, this is one, one of, uh, I mean, one, one of the lines I like from Elon Musk is that it's uh, it's incredibly easy to design a prototype. It's incredibly hard to make the machine that makes makes the to makes the yeah, product yeah. Uh, from which the product uh, which evolved from the prototype and um, and e- equally you've got uh, you know the, it's it's a time issue how fast can you bring these systems online designing something and then actually making it at scale uh, are a huge challenge and we've got to do this <clears throat> at a ludicrous speed to avoid cracking 1.5 degrees which is you know we, we I think we'd acknowledge in this conversation yes. that that itself can be catastrophic um, so this this to me the the problem again is just how fast can this be done exactly and and how sustainable is it in terms of being able to reproduce that over time? Uh, is it something we can do with our current level of income and current distribution of income, or is it impossible with the current levels and distribution well, let, of income? Let's look at the financing of it in, in just a second. But but the the and we've got the third one as well. So just quickly, synthetic methane. So how, yeah. how does that yeah, so work? So you, you just uh, you split up um, hydro uh, water to hydrogen and oxygen electrolytically so with electricity and then combine it with uh, carbon dioxide from the air and then you get uh, methane so CH4 and then you burn it again and produce electricity so basically um, it it loses a lot of uh, energy on the way so it's very poor in efficiency but you don't need so much infrastructure for it. Um, so basically, for batteries, you have a very high efficiency, but you need a lot of materials going in. So you have a lot of investments, not just in terms of money, but in terms of materials and energy to build the infrastructure. And for the uh, synthetic uh, fuels, you lose a lot of energy on the, along the way, but the infrastructure is not so expensive. So for all of those, and because this is just storage, which we're saying we want yes. to minimize, we want to yes. use as much yes. sort of a real-time energy as we possibly can. Exactly. But I mean, just, just for the amount of storage that we feel that we would need, I'm not quite sure what percentage of total usage that would be. Perhaps you've got a, a, a number for that. Uh, it depends where you're talking about, of course. But I mean, um, do, do the resources exist? So when we're looking yes. at rare mineral earths, for example, do they exactly actually exist on the planet to facilitate so, this sort of transition? There are two things to that. So you have to think of the first, the, the, the energy collecting system. 
So let, let's say solar panels. Yeah? And then you have to think of the energy uh, storage system and the transmission system. It's a different thing. So for the energy collection, uh, I'm very confident that we have the materials because, for example, solar panels, it's like basically silicon and you need some... Uh, some silver and you need some aluminium and whatever, but silicon is very abundant, yeah. And the, and the other materials, I'm confident that you could make this work. For the for the storage, it's the same problem. It's, it's not just in, very expensive in terms of energy, but also in terms of materials. And most of the materials we're talking about, where we can't make uh, the, the the supply meet demand, is is lithium, it's cobalt, it's uh, uh, platinum. It's all related to storage basically so again the argument of we need to try to avoid storage and to how far we can do that as a society i don't know and, and this is i think we need a lot of social innovation on, on trying to reschedule our societal operation so that we can actually avoid storage this would be the main task and i don't know how to, to how far we can achieve this but i think this is this is the topic we should uh, yeah. we should think about yeah yeah, because that is a problem, isn't it? Because in, in Britain, if the sun shines, you don't want to say, "Hey, the sun shining, and we can turn the power on and get some work done." You go, "We want to, we want to, we want to get out in here. I haven't seen <laughs> it for so long. I need my vitamin D." <laughs> so, how would you in in Switzerland, for example, what would be the you know what would Switzerland look? What would a zero emissions? I mean, you might be close to it now. I don't know. What would a zero emissions Switzerland look like? Well, it, it's it's far from from state if you look at all the the consumption based emissions because Switzerland imports a lot of goods. Uh, which are produced everywhere else in the world. And uh, so yeah, there's a lot of import of emissions, basically. Um, but Switzerland is very is a very comfortable situation because there's a lot of hydropower and also a lot of potential for hydropump storage, which is the least energy intensive and least material intensive, uh, or not material intensive in terms of mass, but in terms of critical materials. Um, and so they wouldn't need to do so much, actually, in it. So it's basically... In Switzerland, they probably would need to cover all the rooftops with solar PV and um, and change the the mobility infrastructures and uh, industrial infrastructures to yeah be powered by renewable electricity and then reschedule some of the uh, the operations. So when we actually use this energy to avoid the storage and but with the hydro pumped storage capacity they already have, um, it would be actually. Yeah, there wouldn't be so much need to build more great storage, at least. Yeah. And what about the UK? The, the obvious question: What about the UK? I mean, I mean, how to fix that problem? Well, I, I think in the UK you have uh, more wind power to rely on than uh, solar power, uh, but there's a different mm. intermittency problem there. So wind is not always blowing constant either. So uh, you would need to adapt a bit differently. Actually, there was an interesting article I read once about that uh, before the electrification uh, and, and before the um, industrial revolution in the Netherlands, they had these windmills, right, for for milling uh, floor and uh, and saw wood and whatever. And whenever the wind blowed, uh, they they had been very busy days. And when the wind was off, they were just, uh, yeah, had nothing to do, right? <laughs> it's kind of uh, life evolved around when the wind was there and when not. So for the availability of energy, and it's basically interesting to think of this uh, historically. We 
I've been already there. <laughs> but that isn't. But that that so, doesn't so. work when you when you when you've got when you've got manufacturing processes that require twenty four hour and energy and absolutely uninterruptible power supplies. I mean, you can't have a, a smelting system which uh, runs out of energy for half an hour. In half an hour's time, what you're trying to produce as a metal is now attached to the metal that's trying to, to, to make it. Uh, make the product in the first. Well, this instance. is why the, the you know the fossil fuels brigade always use that base load argument, don't they? They go, well, all this renewable stuff is okay to top up, but you need that base load. You need something reliable, and mm. uh, you know, which is why uh, in the in the UK, you know, the government is saying, oh, carbon capture is the future. You know, we'll uh, even though it's very expensive, very intensive, and I'm not quite sure it's worked in, on a scale anywhere in the world. Never. Uh, the UK government seems mm. to think this, yeah. this is the way so forward. Maybe on the, on the intermittency problem for industrial processes, I think th there are some industrial processes which you, which you can't design differently, that it's not interruptible. So, But I, I think most of it, they can. Yeah. So it's just because fossil fuels were so cheap in the past and readily available, we just didn't have a need to design it differently. But it could be, like, technically, I don't see any problem as an engineer to say um, we can redesign these processes. Right? But, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm thinking of problems in terms of is it not, not a, a, a designing engineer, but a materials engineer. Um, and, you know, how, what is actually involved in re replacing that 24-hour-a-day system with a new system? How much engineering is involved? Do we have the materials? Do we have the engineers? Uh, it, it's those transitional issues uh, and the resource availability. For, you mentioned silver in terms of use in solar panels. And silver, if I remember rightly, from um, some of my chow's uh, work is one of the uh, products we're running low on uh, already. Um, so if we're going to drastically expand uh, PVCs, uh, poly, you know, solar cells and so on, we're going to drastically increase our silver needs. Do we, do, do we have the silver mines? Is, is it available uh, in the quantity needed to make the replacements? So those, uh, they, they don't sound like issues that you've actually considered in your, in your modeling. No, not, not yet. So um, basically, this is the things that I'm working on now. So where to get all the materials from and how can we, I call this, uh, how can we mobilize the materials right? and, and that could be different um, parts to it so it could be from from the ground so primary production but it could also be from what we have already in society so repurposing the stocks we already have and also uh, getting it from from the waste uh, from previous waste so landfills and um, and tailings and uh, other forms but in the case of silver, there are lots of initiatives going on in the industry to reduce the amount of silver needed and also to replace it with other materials. So there, there have been recently some work done on replacing it with uh, with, co with a copper paste, uh, which wasn't possible previously because of the contact between the copper and the, the silicon. Uh, but they've figured out somehow a way to do that and uh, or, or also to, uh, to replace it with with, with graphene, yeah, with, with, with carbon, yeah. um, which is also an interesting aspect because you could actually bind carbon in solar panels. Yeah. So if you take it from the air, even the carbon, <laughs> that could be could be an interesting thing, but it's not yet ready to be implemented. Yeah. And this is again a question of speed. So how how can we how can we scale up uh, such new developments? In time. So it sounds like, I mean, do you believe, if we took out that uh, rather crucial time factor, uh, let's behave like economists and assume that anything can be done instantly, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, we, uh, and, 
and do you think we could get to the stage, if we ignore time, that we'd have the resources and the expertise available to, to make the transition to a zero carbon world where we reduce that element of, of, of risk that we are, are facing uh, without compromising our lifestyle? Sounds like you're saying, no, we would, there would have to be some changes to lifestyle, but that, I mean, which could actually be a good thing. I mean, think back to the beginning of the pandemic uh, when everyone was out on their bikes one of the best time I mean, I feel sorry for all those people who are dying but that aside uh, fortunately i wasn't you know i didn't know anybody who 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 was seriously hurt during the pandemic but i mean at the beginning of it you know happy days out cycling on empty roads so i wish it could <laughs> always be like that so maybe a change in our lifestyle is a good thing and maybe that needs to be factored into the equation as well but i mean it's it's all eminently doable as far as you're concerned yeah. if we ignore time <laughs> I think uh, that's an economist punchline at the end there—a punchline, punching an economist line rather than a punchline. Well, so I think that without uh, compromising on, like, it depends on the perspective. If you if you think from a rich European uh, North American perspective, then uh, without changing our our expectations and uh, aspirations, uh, we will not get anywhere. Even if we have all the time of the world and all the materials and so on. Um, but if you think from a from a third world uh, developing countries perspective, then there is even an, uh, not only the need but also the possibility to improve a lot. So basically, um, what I'm trying to find out is a kind of uh, how can we how can you think of reducing the inequality in the world together with uh, with doing this change? Um, and it's very evident to me that. In, in the in the global north or in the, in the rich countries, we have to reduce per capita, especially for the for the richer percentiles, right? And uh, for the the people who live below average today, there could even be an increase. And you talked about importing uh, goods which are from countries where there might be a lot of carbon emissions. I mean, maybe that's. Uh, I mean, I, I know Steve, you're not a fan of carbon tax. But, I mean, that may be a way of equalizing this. If there's investment into third world countries to create zero emission goods, and then you, you're importing zero emissions, and that might go part of the way. But I mean, in some of those countries, it might actually be easier to implement that change uh, because because they need it faster, and you're going to see a faster return on well, that investment. I'm, I'm not so a fan of, of, of this. Uh, like during the transition, I, I think looking at, at the annual carbon emissions isn't the best way to do it. Because what matters to the climate is the cumulative emissions, so the emissions which we have over the whole transition. And now, actually, what as it turns out, uh, the modeling so which we have done in the past is it's very interesting because when you when you speed up the transition and you emit more today, because you get an extra energy to actually get to more stuff um, for the transition, um, then you shorten the transition so much that. In the end, you have less cumulative emissions. So overall, you have less emissions. And so basically, if we if we now start during the transition to uh, to to tax carbon, uh, we make just the transition more expensive and delayed by that. Right. So you're saying so because I mean that was going to be one of my questions. If if we go through a period of saying, well, okay, we need more, for example, more wind farms in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're going to use a lot of carbon in the manufacture of those wind farms if you're going to do it. So, exactly. yeah. and and could that be a, a you know what my question was going to be is there going to be a detrimental effect on that because it you know it sort of just adds to that ag- aggregate carbon in, in in the atmosphere. But you're saying no if you do it quickly then yeah. you you're getting those wind farms faster so therefore Switch you can off. 
turn yeah, off those exactly. carbon emissions. So it's, yeah. it's all a matter of uh, how fast can you turn off the fossils, right? And and the the idea is if you now increase emissions, um, it's not the idea that we we increase um, general economic activity, but only very targeted to producing all the infrastructure we need for replacing the fossils. So it's it's really very targeted on only producing wind power and uh, solar panels and and those things we really need and everything else uh, we should actually reduce right so we should be saying well okay let's up our carbon emissions for the next five years or however long it takes Mm. uh to try and bring in these alternate technologies and just just accept that that's a cost that we've got to we've got to bear but of course you know we've to to do that you've got to up the production of fossil fuels to meet the demand Yes, yes, yes. We've got to open but coal there, mines. There's no, there's no, no, there's no need to open new uh, coal mines or power plants or anything. Uh, with the existing capacity, fossil capacity, we could uh, we could well do that. Yeah? So we won't need any more power plants or, or oil wells or anything to develop. We can just um, use that infrastructure we have already and invest now everything in building the new infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we've got like, we've got five minutes, so I'm going to ask questions from Steve just to <laughs> yeah. just to round off today because he's been looking very quizzical through all of this. I have to say, well, it, it, it does come down to the you know, it, it's it, in some ways like, what I can see here is the clash between a design engineer's philosophy, which you're putting forward, and a, a um, materials engineer's philosophy, which is what Simon Marchal and, uh, and people who are pro nuclear rather than pro. Uh, solar put forward, uh, and and that is that it, it's how fast can you do it? Is it feasible to make the transition? Uh, you, you, given your design specifications, uh, can we make the materials transition fast enough? Um, that's you know one major problem, and the other is the uh, energy distribution system and the material needs of that system. If you have distributed energy versus the material needs, if you have a focused energy source, which of course, when you're talking non uh, non fossil fuel focused energy sources, then fundamentally that's nuclear. And um, like I, I feel, feel it'd be intriguing to put Simon Marchow's availability numbers into your modelling of, of a transition. I've got a feeling the two would not fit. I uh, let me uh, just just to say about uh, nuclear, right? Uh, if it's um, if it's a question of speed, uh, I'm also questioning if we can build enough nuclear just just from this perspective, build enough nuclear capacity in, in the same time, right? And, and I have the same, I have the same thing. Like it did, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's an engineering issue in both cases. So, you know, do we have the engineers? Do we have the means of pumping out the, the power stations that rapidly? I think the answer in, in you know, in the, in the nuclear was also, look, um, you've, you've also got this huge... It doesn't have to be either up. or, though, does it? So? I mean, it doesn't have to be either or. But even if it's both, and it would have to be both, um, we, we are starting from well and truly behind the eight ball in terms of our capacities. We we don't have the engineers. We don't have the production systems. We're talking about you know, training up the engineers and designing, turning a, a design specification into an actual production system. So have you put figures on timing in your models, Harold? Have you got an idea of how long a transition to a, a zero-carbon world, well, you know, so how many years will we be what, talking? What we have done is a, is a dynamic modelling and basically... Um, What's the question? How fast could it be? Just based on the energy investments needed, and uh, with the idea of keeping constant energy investments. So 
the energy investment during the transition wouldn't change, which is obviously a very simplified uh, view in, in, in terms of scarcity of materials. But uh, other people say we have learning effects. So basically, maybe they're too balanced each other out. I don't know. It's like ongoing work. But if we had constant energy investments, we could do the transition in the most optimistic way. Uh, assumptions we could do it in about five to ten years globally of course we'd need uh five to ten years of political maneuvering to be able to even start on it that's the problem exactly that's the that's the problem <laughs> it would be just it would be just energy wise mm. this would be possible and uh, i don't think that will work out because of all the other problems and in the end what i'm doing now is i'm trying to find out how much the material constraint would delay this transition the fastest possible right and then would be the question still uh how much uh, with the social inertia and social uh, uh, processes delay this transition. Right? But I, I'm confident that we can change uh, the social structure. We can, like all the social structures, be it the economy or the political system, this is uh, something we made and we, we can negotiate about that. But we cannot negotiate about the physics, about the materials available and the energy available. The, the limits of the planet this is not negotiable right Harold I feel like we've only touched the surface but can I just say it's been great having you on because every week I hear Steve <laughs> Keen talking about how mankind is finished and we're never going to find our way out of this uh, so it's nice to hear someone with a you know an enthusiastic outlook that actually we can we can <laughs> solve this problem engineers have the answer maybe not all of them it's well, just no 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 <laughs> but it's it's maybe not but 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 I'm, I'm uh, this is our last chance basically <laughs> yeah we've got to do it we have no choice yeah. exactly yeah, so, so we better get on with it. And we've got five to ten years if we can just convince the politicians. Uh, you know, we, there needs to be societal change. There needs to be some sort of – I mean, the, the you know, people are talking about it now, but it, we, but we, but it's an economic change. I mean, your final question for Steve, really. I mean, it's not just a technical solution. It is a change to, in our approach to, to economics, how we pay for stuff and how we treat the income divide and, uh, you know – who the beneficiaries are, and power is centralised, and those people don't want to give up that power. That's anything, the anything but, and uh, we're still being guided by, uh, you know, what I prefer to call these days, Ptolemaic economists. Mm. Uh, you know, they have no idea of what's coming our way. So the policymakers, uh, it, it, it'll be events that force the change in their policy, not any planning to avoid those events. Well, or carbon capture, though. I understand that's that's the answer. Oh, that's, to, that's a go. Yeah, yeah. 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 No need to it talk runs about on it. hopium. I mean, there's plenty <laughs> hopium. of that around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Don't need to talk about it anymore. Harold, very good to talk. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again at some point in the future. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having oh, me. By the way, before, before yeah. we just say, how, how can people locate your work? Oh, yes. Good question. Oh, yeah. There, there are plenty of papers out and... Uh... Uh, shall I send you some links or send us some links and but also just yeah. say say them live on air? Oh, now. oh just I yeah. guess if we just Google your name, Harold Dessing will find yes, them, won't we? Yes, yes, yeah. we'll find them. Yeah. yeah, okay, Harold with two A's, H A R A L D uh, Dessing. Okay, yes, great, Thank Harold. You. Okay, good to talk. See you soon. See you soon. Good. Thanks. Now, yeah, it never works really well trying to give out uh, web addresses on the radio or on podcasts. So just look him up. Now, next week, uh, we all know, of course, that raising interest rates hits certain members of society 
more than others. Basically, the poor you are, the worse off you are as we see interest rates rise. And that is recognised by the new Keynesians. They've looked at a, a, a better model rather than the traditional rank model, the representative agent model. Uh, there is the Hank model, still founded in neoclassic economics, but uh, this heterogeneous, heterogeneous agent new Keynesian model attempts to manage those distributional impacts. So does that make it better? Is it just a step in the right direction? Or is it just no good at all? Uh, we'll look at that next week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. See you next week. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.